0: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio is... Jason Rosenbaum. And... Joe Manis. And our special guest this week... Katherine Hanaway. You might have read about her in
1: the news recently. Making some waves, wouldn't you say, Jason? I would say so. I mean, we're looking we're looking ahead in this this uh, politically speaking yes. podcast. When we, you know everyone's talking about 2014, we're going to 2016 today.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, and as our listeners probably know, Catherine Hannaway is, is was the first and so far only uh, Missouri Speaker of the House was a woman, and you uh, also was a U.S. Attorney from this part of the state
3: for several years. Well, I got into politics. I think you know sort of by genetic disorder, the (laughs) one that makes me volunteer to do things, going um, all the way back to, you know, being the president of my 4-H club in high school. But um, in Missouri, I came to Missouri for a job, Um, not originally from here, I grew up in rural Nebraska and Iowa, but after law school I wanted to practice securities law, and St. Louis then and now, and it's one of the few things we can say this about where St. Louis continues to be an industry leader. We have more broker dealers based here than anywhere outside of New York. And depending on how you count brokers, maybe even more than New York. Really? And so I didn't want to go to New York City, but I did want to do securities litigation. So I came here Tremendous opportunities, including an opportunity to go to work
1: for Senator Bond on his staff. Yeah, which, that's when I
2: first met you. That's when you
3: first met
1: me. So you're one of the many uh, political figures that got their start with Senator Kit Bond. What did he teach you? Because I'm sure he taught you a lot over the years. He
3: he did teach me a lot over the years. And the one thing that that stands out for me based on his very long tenure in public service is that he – He taught us all that worked for him to play it straight, no matter what. And that meant living well within the ethical rules of being in government, but also telling people really what you stand for and not trying to sort of nuance all the answers, which at times for those of us on his staff – was a little bit frustrating because if the answer was no, he would tell people no. He Mm -hmm. wouldn't say, I don't know. I'll get back to you. And I think that's why he always had close elections. But I also think it's why he always won elections. But if you think about him, he was in office from 1970 until 2010 with a four-year hiatus, Mm -hmm. not a single ethical scandal. In that entire time.
1: There are very few other elected officials you can say that about. And now he might be on his longest break ever from public service. I think it's because you mentioned the four year gap was because he lost the governorship um, in 1976 and he came back to win. He retired in 2010. I, I'm assuming he's not going to run for office again. So I think he has eclipsed that four-year break Yeah, now. but he's active in Jefferson But he's still City, very yeah, active. But we'll get
2: into that later. Well, <laughs> con, 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 continue, yeah. Madam Hannaway. <laughs>
3: well, uh, thanks, Joe. Um, so – after I had worked for Senator Bond for five years, I ran for office myself the first time in 1998. and As a state rep? As a state rep. From
2: Worsen Woods, correct? From
3: Worsen Woods. I also, my husband and I had our first child that year, so 1998 was a memorable year. Then I became minority leader. Soon thereafter, through a lot of hard work, and for the first time in 48 years, the Republicans— Took the majority in the Missouri House of Representatives, and I became the Speaker of the House.
2: I mean, a lot of people on both sides of the aisle give you a lot of credit for the Republican shift in the 2002 election that gave Republicans control of the House, because there was a lot of people who've talked about how you in, you went around the state recruiting candidates and
3: well, I, I'm. I'm grateful that people credit me with that. Um, There were many of us who put a lot of hard work into it. But yes, for two years, I traveled anywhere anyone would talk to me about it. And we went in in one election cycle, the, the 2002 election cycle, from having 76 members to 90. Term limits had an impact on that. Um, But also, I I, I know that I visited in person with more than 350 people around the state, one-on-one, either trying to persuade them to run or to invest in the campaigns.
1: Now, you know, it's hard for us to imagine a legislature in Missouri that's not dominated by Republicans. but. You know,
3: it's not that hard for Joe and I to imagine that. But for you and Chris, it probably is. In
1: 2003 and 2004 was a whole new world. And you were also dealing with a Democratic governor, Bob Holden, who I guess has an office down the street now. And I guess the battles between you and him were somewhat legendary. Yeah, I was
2: there for some of those.
1: What was it kind of like in this new Republican majority? you know, trying to get all these things done that you wanted to get done for all these years, but kind of being stymied by a Democratic governor in many respects?
3: Well, in many respects, it was great to be that first majority after 48 years, because there were so many ideas we could all agree on. And even most Missourians could agree on because conservative ideas had not had a voice on the floor of the Missouri House in 48 years. Well, you know even with the most liberal members of society there's a few conservative ideas they like and so we were able to go to kind of the the agenda that everybody could agree on right away now Holden disagreed and where he most fundamentally disagreed with me on it was whether or not we should raise taxes i was against it he was for it we even had a special session of the legislature about whether to put a tax increase on the ballot and during that session I, cu- I quoted a country music song and said, you know, Governor, what part of no, don't you understand? And he ended up running that that clip in his ads um, in his race with Claire McCaskill sort of saying, hey, I am the governor who could stand up to the Republicans. Um, as we know, he didn't win that primary. So it, I don't think I was a very effective spokesperson for him. <laughs> Well,
2: then you ran for secretary of state in 2004.
3: And got the silver medal, which is <laughs> awesome in the Olympics, but not that great in a lot is of Is there us. anything
2: that you learned from that race that y- that you'll use when you run for governor into your- or that you, since you already have announced that you're using now as far as – Things that you say, well, you know, McCaskill has said this. There's certain things, because she lost for governor in 2004, that certain things that she learned from that loss that she then translated into her victory a few years later.
3: Oh, there's a lot I I have learned. Um, Preeminent among them is not to run against uh, the daughter of the recently deceased governor. Um, You know, (laughs) that that was the preeminent thing. Um, But also, importantly, Um, I honestly think I worked a little too hard and not smart enough in that campaign, which is a very honest assessment, but I just traveled intensely and all of the time. And I think that if anything, um, I need to cover as much ground, but, um, do more select events. I mean, any, anywhere two or more were gathered, I was, I was there, you know, for, and, uh, I think I need to focus more on population centers and, you know, spend spend a little more time make sure I'm rested and prepared for for big events.
1: Because, you know, there is a tendency in Missouri politics that people run for something, including Kit Bond ran for Congress in I think the late nineteen sixties and lost, and he probably used that race to run for, I believe, auditor. And yeah, that's right, seventy-two. And, and there's also, you know, Jane Nixon ran for U.S. Senate, and he probably used that experience to run for Attorney General. Our our guest next week, Blaine Demire ran in the same election cycle as you for for Treasurer and lost in the primary, and that experience has been credited for him winning Congress. So I don't necessarily think losing is necessarily a death knell in Missouri politics, but you know. No, I don't
3: either. And I I will tell you that more than losing that election, and I do think you learn more from losing than winning, but even more than losing that election, what I think has prepared me to make a run for governor are the four years I spent as United States Attorney. Yeah, I was just going to get into that. And the six years I will have spent since then in private practice, and maybe a little bit longer. Math has never been my long suit. (laughs) Um, But, you know, as U.S. Attorney you get to see people sort of at their best and their worst. And um, you have an opportunity really to stand up for all all the people. When you're in a partisan office, just by nature of how elections work, half the people – are going to be for you, and half the people are going to be against you. When you're the United States attorney, the only people who are really against you are the criminals you're putting in jail.
2: Yeah, you might want to explain just uh, like if, what what the U.S. attorney does.
3: That, thank you, Joe. So the U.S. attorney is the chief federal law enforcement officer for half the state in Missouri's case. So from Iowa to Arkansas, almost to Columbia, Um, You are the chief federal prosecutor. You work with the FBI, the Drug Enforcement Agency, uh, the Secret Service to prosecute federal crimes of every nature, which are um, as small as those who might vandalize the arch because it's a national park, all the way up to and including large white-collar criminal schemes such as uh, paying bribes to doctors to use a particular medical device or uh, manipulating the stock market and everything in between. And so during that time period, when I say I got to see people at their best, you know, sometimes it's very hard for victims to come forward, but they do in the interests of law enforcement. And then certainly you see people at their worst and, uh, you know, meth cooks and child pornographers and, you know, we prosecuted the Michael Devlin case, who mm, yeah, was uh, you know, which was...
1: is probably your highest profile case during U.S. Attorney's yeah. stint. Would yes. that be fair to say? I
3: think that for a single case, that was the highest profile. Probably the one nationally that's even more well known was we prosecuted Bet on Sports, which was an online gambling company um, that was clearly illegal in the United States. It was a publicly traded company in England, and we caught the two. Uh, sort of chief executives, one being a founder, one being the chief executive, one in Costa Rica and one in Dallas, but then brought them
1: to justice here in St. Louis. So you you, you decided to run for governor. I believe you made your your first speech in beautiful Montauk County in mid-Missouri. Um, two, two questions here. Why did you decide to run for governor? And the fact that you haven't been on the ballot since 2004 – Do you see that as a positive because you've been kind of been out of the fray in Jefferson City? Or do you think that might mean you have to work harder because, you know, you've been out of the electoral eye for so long?
3: There's a whole bunch
1: of questions in there. (laughs) Let's
3: start with the most important. Why do I want to run for governor? And the answer to that is very simple. I believe that Missouri is a great state with great, hardworking people in it, but that we're falling behind the rest of the country in terms of growing our economy, creating jobs, creating a future for people like my son Jack who's in the next room and 11 years old. Um, I I am very concerned that all of the opportunities that I have enjoyed, that everybody in this room has enjoyed – um, are going away for younger Missourians and that they're going to have to leave the state to have the same kinds of opportunities and so I'm running for governor because I think that they that the right leadership can change the direction that Missouri's going so that we're creating jobs and and attracting businesses and employers to this state.
2: Are there anything particular that you would want to do let's say like your 100-day agenda or whatever?
3: Well, it's pretty early to have a (laughs) 100-day agenda, but the lens through which I would assess any proposal is, is it more likely or less likely to create a job in Missouri? And sort of a corollary to that would be, does it create opportunity for anyone who's willing to take the risk of hiring someone, as opposed to Some of the sort of crony capitalism that we've seen where we're kind of picking winners and losers with certain tax credits. It needs to be uh, a a place where anyone who's willing to to put forth their own effort and ingenuity and inventiveness, that they're going to want to be here because this is the place that's exciting and forward-looking.
0: You mentioned that this is pretty early. So what made you decide to announce at the time that you did
3: Well, it's funny, you know, Jason said that I uh, made a sp- it was the first speech in, in Monotau co- County. I'd actually been making a similar speech in lots of counties. Think that's when right. the first time people
1: noticed it right. or something right. like that. Right, right. So someone it tweeted from there, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah.
3: Catherine Hanaway has announced, which was a great lesson for me, because there was no Twitter ten years ago when I ran. There was no Twitter in
1: 2007, let right. alone 2003 and 2004, but continue.
3: But, you know, I really picked Monotau County because it's the epicenter of the political world. It is. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> I'm sure Caleb Jones is thrilled well, actually, to hear that. Actually, I mean, to be serious for many Republicans, it is.
3: Well, it is the middle of the state and it does certainly um, represent a lot of the values held by rural Missourians. And so in that sense, it is the epicenter. Um, but why Why did I announce early? Because Chris Coster cleared his primary field a year ago and has been raising money vigorously for his governor's race since then. And if we don't get started as Republicans, we will never catch him. And so we've made that mistake as Republicans. The last two gubernatorial cycles, our candidate's gotten in, you know, with a year or less before the election, and it's just not enough time to put together the kind of campaign you need to win the governor's mansion.
2: Now, for our listeners, uh, Chris Koster is a Missouri attorney general. He's a Democrat. He used to be a Republican. He switched in 2007. Now, I covered him last weekend at Democrat Days, which is the first of a series of regional Democratic gatherings, and he gave what was arguably his most targeted speech about what he he believes in, what he thinks the state should be doing. And one of the things that he talked about was the Medicaid expansion, because he says he cites the experts who say it would add 24,000 jobs to the state, and he contends that Republicans talk all about job creation, yet... When it came to that, they don't want to do it because he said, quote, they want to, quote, spite the president, that it's all about uh, trying to oppose Barack Obama, not about what's doing best for the state. Now, obviously, he this is one of his messages that he's going to be continuing to press for the next couple of years. How, I mean, what's your response to that?
3: Well— my response, and I didn't hear his speech, so I, I'm basing my response largely. You weren't largely. invited to Democrat days? <laughs> I think it's open to the public. I mean, Maybe I'll was, go one of these there, years. In fact, I was
2: surprised there wasn't a Republican tracker there, but that's another thing.
3: <laughs> but <laughs> but um, i basing my response largely on the reporting, and, and the reporting suggests that Attorney General Coster is for the expansion of Medicaid as proposed under Obamacare. Yes. And my concern about that as a mechanism to create opportunity and grow jobs in Missouri is it's really just a further expansion of the welfare state, a similar expansion to the one that we lived through when Governor Carnahan was in office. And the result of that was while it was initially paid for by the federal government – It got shifted down to the states. We couldn't afford it and then had to roll it back, and it was extremely painful for those people in Missouri who were counting on it. So I think that there are perhaps opportunities to leverage those federal dollars to provide more health care in Missouri, but anything that we undertake in that regard has got to be uh, an ironclad – barrier to the shift of that burden onto Missouri because it's it's a teaser rate. It's hey, here come take this free money from the federal government and just a couple of years later Missouri then is saddled with that and if you look at the numbers it it it, it would be devastating. It is not the kind of growth we could sustain um based on the revenues that Missouri collects now. And and let's be clear. The thing that creates opportunity Um, is jobs, is bringing new jobs here, not this business that's already in Missouri getting some tax credits and then this other business in Missouri fighting to move them around. It's new businesses, new people. And then when those revenues come in, that's what pays for public health programs, better highways, better schools. There's a direct connect between those two.
1: Now, the other thing that you know, if it is you versus Coster, that there's definitely going to be a difference on his labor issues. Coster has fashioned himself as this champion of organized labor. He's going to say, you know, they'll pass right to work over my veto pen, white and whatnot.
3: Is is he going to say that? Because I heard I, I, last night, I heard that he's saying something different about that. I,
1: I, I haven't heard this, but I think.
3: Well,
2: he's 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 not for right to work, but I think you know he probably is. He has. Tr- sought to position himself as this is a uh, conservative Democrat. I mean that's how he betrays right. himself. So on some issues, um, there may be some things on the margins. I mean, what are you hearing?
3: Well, I would heard that he said that it's an issue for the ballot, which I think is a an, an unusual position for someone who's running for governor to take on such an important issue that I, that I do think has a big impact on our ability to create jobs here in Missouri.
2: Well, I think his position, um, uh, I last time I talked to him about it, was actually just a couple of days ago, <laughs> was that he does believe that the voters should be weighing in on certain things as opposed to the General Assembly. And that now some see right to work, some Democrats, because I was a Democrat days, Think that uh, if right to work was on the ballot, it actually might help Democratic turnout because labor would be able to organize. As far as not, there's labor retirees, there's all this and that that they think that it might help in, in in some of the same ways that right to farm is seen by some Republicans as a way to help that. Yeah, but, that's that's yeah. why I
1: think he's saying that. But let, let's let's kind of get to the heart of the matter. If you are governor, would you sign right to work? I would sign right to work. Why?
3: Because right now we look at the states to the to the south of us and now to the north of us, who have manufacturing bases, which we once had in Missouri. we were w- once a very I think we were third in auto manufacturing, maybe as high as second. almost all of that those jobs have now gone to the south, and it's largely to right to work states. Michigan's now a right to work state. Um, almost half the country is we need those jobs. We need those jobs to have a solid middle class. And about, well, it's less than 10% of the workforce is are in private sector labor unions. Why should that 10% of the workforce make it more difficult for the other 90% to get jobs? And that doesn't mean that people can't be in unions. It just means that you... Won't have closed shops where you have to be a member of a union to get a job. I think that everybody ought to have a right to make a decision for themselves and and to to be employed
2: now the Democrats, of course, are contending that actually the right to work do would do would be to uh push down all wages i mean that That was the big theme last weekend that it would that it wouldn't affect just union people, but other people would see their wages go down too uh Do you see that as an issue, or is that not? the real thing.
3: I I don't think that's an issue. I think that the thing that pushes down wages is a lack of demand by employers for employees. And if we have people competing to hire Missourians, that's what's going to support wages.
1: Now, this might be a wild card of an issue because it kind of is uh, maybe not what you would expect with the Republican and Democrat. But uh, Attorney General Coster has been on record opposing campaign finance limits. He even voted against it um, when he was a Democrat. What's kind of your opinion on that? Could we see a situation where the Democrat in this race opposes campaign finance limits and the Republican maybe is amenable to them? Or have you been opposed to that as well?
3: Well, there's really two categories here. One Mm -hmm. is ethical reform. Mm -hmm. So on gifts and and lobbyists buying things for – legislators and statewide office holders. Absolutely, we have to have some ethics reform in Missouri. I am very concerned about that. Um, on the other side of the ledger's campaign finance reform, and I have not previously run for office when there have been no limits. There right. were always limits in the races I've run. Um, what I can tell you about the environment with limits is that people just find another way. I mean, money is like water. And so it it goes into, frankly, the nooks and crannies instead of sort of running down the mainstream. I think that having a system that is extremely transparent so every voter can understand what interests are contributing to your campaign –
1: is better than having a dollar limit. So that might be an issue that you and the attorney general may have some commonality on. It may be. Wow.
2: Now, concealed carry, which is another issue, it's already floating around. Um, I thought you might want to talk a little bit about your evolution of that stance. I mean, there's some who characterized you as initially not being too keen on it when you were in the state house as a legislator, although in fairness, you were speaker when the House overrode Holden's veto of the concealed carry law. Well,
3: very simply, um, I got elected in 1998. My first year in office was 1999. And
2: that's when the concealed carry was was on on the the ballot. ballot.
3: My district voted 70% plus against concealed carry. When it came up for a vote again in the legislature, I felt like I needed to represent my constituents and I voted against it. When we campaigned for winning the majority in the House, we were very transparent on this issue and said, if we become the majority party, we're going to make concealed carry the law in Missouri. I supported it after we'd gone out and I was clear with my constituents. This is what I'm going to do. And they still reelected me. And so – We passed it, I supported it, Holden vetoed it, and we overrode the veto, and I supported the veto override.
2: How do you think it's worked out in the 10 years since then?
3: I think it's been um, very much as I thought it would be, which is we haven't seen a big increase in violence as a result, nor have we seen a big decrease. You know, the the supporters of concealed carry um, believe that we might see a decrease in violence because people um, have the ability to protect themselves. I don't. It, it hasn't moved the needle a great deal in either direction, but I do think it's very positive for those people who do want to be able to uh, protect themselves and have that sense of security.
1: This kind of goes back to my wordy first question, but by the time you're going to be running for governor, it'll have been like 12 years since you casted a vote in the Missouri House, and it'll have been about eight years since Coster has. Do you think that voting records or even the, the the issues that you voted on in 2002 and 4 and 6 and 8 are really even going to be relevant then? Or do you think that especially, as we'll probably get to, if there's a primary, they may be trying to nitpick the certain things that you did back then?
3: I think you're right. I think Missouri voters are going to be a lot more interested in what we would do for them in 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 the future than our voting records in the past and issues like uh, privacy and what the state will or will not do to protect people's personal information are going to be important how we grow this economy and government doesn't create jobs it's whether we have a set of policies that really invites people to come here you know you look at silicon valley and what a boom that's been jack dorsey's from here you know, the inventor of Twitter is from here. Why, why didn't he start his business in Missouri? It's not that they had um, a special anything there other than a community of people who were focused on uh, technology. Well, what are we going to be known for? What are we going to be the community that's innovative?
0: Well, we've talked a little bit about jobs and economic development. What are your thoughts on the Republican tax cut proposals? Are there anything – is there anything that you would change within those? Well, sure. I
3: mean I wouldn't tax prescription drugs. I mean that's pretty easy. I think that that is the hallmark of the difference between the kind of governor that I would be and the kind of governor that we have now and the kind of governor I suspect that – we might have if it's somebody other than me is that I have led the legislature and I would plan to do so as governor in terms of if there's a bill moving through that I think has the potential to be good rather than wait until it lands on my desk and and sort of say, well, this provision should have been different and this provision should have been different. I'll roll up my sleeves and get in there and and try to shepherd it through the process and work with the legislative leadership to make sure that by the time it gets to my desk that it's the kind of bill I can sign.
2: Now, it does sound from what you've been saying that you share Governor Nixon's uh, concern about the rise in state tax credit programs. That may be one area, at least on general, where you may agree with him. Would you like to get rid of all state tax credit programs or... Would it be a matter of fine-tuning certain ones?
3: Yeah, without getting too far into the details, here's the general principle that applies, which is if we bring the state income tax level down, the need for state tax credits almost goes away because you don't have anything to apply the tax credit against. So I am much more for bringing the state income tax rate down so that everyone enjoys the benefit rather than sort of picking winners and losers.
1: Now, you know, as we kind of alluded to at the beginning, we're a long ways away from 2016. I remember in the run up to the 2008 cycle, I was talking about you Michael Gibbons and Chris Costa running in the Republican primary for attorney general. So, I mentioned that when we were we had Ann Wagner on the show cuz a lot could change in in a couple years, but You're not the only Republican who's thinking about running for governor. A lot of people are putting Tom Schweik, the state auditor, as a possibility. And they're going to say, look, he can raise a lot of money. He beat an incumbent statewide official in 2010. He might run unopposed this year. There's not a Democrat who's filed against him which and,
2: is another theory which I'll get into in a minute
1: <laughs> and also it's kind of alluding to before he doesn't have a voting record and he can just point to the things that he's done in an executive office and he doesn't have to you know explain a lot of the votes my point is or my question is cuz that was kind of just a wordy explanation if it is you versus Schweik, how do you think you stack up against him and how do you prevent it from being like 2008 where it's kind of a destructive primary going into the general.
3: Well, as you know, we the primary that you foreshadowed for 2008 didn't happen. Yes. And so um, there there wasn't a real destructive primary in 2008. But look, I'm not going to say anything uh, to contrast my record with Tom Schweig's today. As you said, we're two and a half years out. He is up for re-election this year. I'm... 100% supportive of him being reelected as auditor. I think he's done a very fine job. There are many issues on which we agree. Um, as we walk down this path in terms of fundraising strength, grassroots support, a lot of that will come out as we build our respective organizations. If, in fact, he does decide to run for governor and As of right now, I'm the only announced Republican candidate. Right, and
1: that's why I mentioned that caveat at the the front. A lot of things could happen. There might be another office that opens up that he runs for. There may not be a primary, but there might be. So, Have,
2: Have there been any discussions between you and him yet?
3: Yeah, he and I have sat down and talked on a couple of times, and they've been pleasant, candid, direct conversations. We both are sort of that kind of person, and... So I suspect we'll keep talking, and we're seeing a lot of each other at County Lincoln Days. I think uh, we were at four of them since last Friday together.
2: Now, one of the theories that was floating around Democrat Days was um, that one of the reasons that there is no high-profile Democrat who has been willing to run for state auditor— There's no
1: Democrat right now. Right.
2: I know there's none right now. Is that allegedly—now, I want to emphasize this is allegedly— that allegedly Coster oh is discouraging any high-profile Democrat from running because he would like Schweik not to have to spend too much money to uh, defend his office, and therefore Schweik would have more money to run in a possible primary against you. So the idea being that, uh, according to some Democratic operatives, um, he would prefer to run against Schweik than you. Now, in all fairness, I asked Coster about this on Saturday <laughs> And he kinda gave me the same
3: response. <laughs> me now like and said, would you <laughs> expect anything different? Well,
2: he said it was he said it sounded like very complicated political gossip. <laughs> so I want to emphasize that this very is not something that that, that 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 Coster But still there's the talk out there. So I guess how does it feel? I mean, in, in other words, I've had other Republicans who've said that you poll better than Schweike against Coster. Um I have no idea, and I guess I have mixed feelings about internal polls. But that said, the fact that there is a sort of speculation going on—what? Just speaking in general, just as a political tactician, because obviously you're good at this, because that's how the Republicans got the House. Um, just looking—is it smart for the Democrats to have nobody run against uh, whoever it would be Schweik or whoever running for state auditor? And what does that say as far as the? Um, condition of the Republican Party in the state versus the Democratic Party in the state?
3: You know, Joe, I think the thing that I left behind 10 years ago when the last time I ran for office was being a political tactician. (laughs) And and frankly, that's what the last several years in the private sector has taught me is that people just care so little about these sort of internal machinations that we go through. My law practice, is in large measure fighting the regulatory burdens of government and everyone from a beauty salon owner up through boeing is spending a huge percentage of what they bring in in revenues pushing back on the government and until we shrink that burden um even even if we shrink that burden, I don't think people are going to care about the internal tactics of whether somebody runs for audit or in some measure
1: to set up a gubernatorial primary. Right, I'm sure people are are drinking their coffee and thinking about that. Um, but but just kind of as a a parting question, you know, 2004 was a great. I mean. It was a great year for Republicans statewide. You know,
3: they, it, 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 it was in terms of outcomes, yes. it was, but
1: it was a very close year. Yes. Matt Runt
3: won, won the governorship by less than one percentage point. Yes.
1: The reason I mention that is you know, they won the governorship, lieutenant governorship, treasurer. They won, I believe, a U.S. Senate race. Kit Bond beat Nancy Farmer pretty easily that year, mm-hmm. and they strengthened their numbers in the legislature since that time. It seems like while the Republicans have done well on a state legislative level,
2: well, although 2010 was Republican blowout yes. with with uh, Blunt and Schweik.
1: And so. As far as those 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 state array of statewide offices, it just hasn't seemed to come together except for Lieutenant Governor Kinder going into 2016. Do you think, regardless of who the gubernatorial nominee is, whether it's you or somebody else, I'm sure you want it to be you, obviously. Are the Republicans better positioned? to kind of get back on track winning these statewide offices? Or do you think that they still kind of have a long way to go before they get their act together? Oh, I think that we're going to
3: have a very good year in 2016, in in large measure because of the policies at the national level. Because the policies at the national level sort of brand the respective parties, even though the state has become much more conservative leaning, and, and look, if, if you read what Jay Nixon has said in his campaigns or listen to his ads, and if you listen to what Chris Coster is saying, even at Democrat days, this is a far more conservative Democrat party than we saw even in 2000. And that's largely because the state is leaning more conservative. So if at the national level, um, the Democrat brand is associated with Obamacare, associated with a bungled foreign policy worldwide, associated with sort of mischaracterizing um, what its policies would mean for the American people, and having broken a lot of promises, I I think it's going to be a very good year for Republicans in 2016.
0: Well, we'll have to end it there. To close us out, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at CSMcDaniel, Jason. Jay Rosenbaum. Joe.
2: Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S.
3: And
0: do you have a Twitter account
3: yet? I do, and I think
1: it's Hannaway4Gov. I believe that's right, with the four as a number, if uh-huh. I'm not mistaken. <laughs> I'm, I could be wrong, but I think that's the case.
0: All right. Well, we'll be back next week. Until then, so long.